Welcome to the Speech Uncensored podcast, your destination for nourishing your mind and flourishing in the medical speech and language pathology field. Today's episode features Dr. Amanda Stead on the topic of -of end-of-life care and the speech-language pathologist. I'm really happy that I get to share the audio from that two-hour live ASHA CEU with SpeechTherapyPD.com because it is just chock full of awesomeness. If you missed the live event, you can access the video recording and other materials with your SpeechTherapyPD.com basic or premium memberships. And remember, I have a promo code for you, so if you feel like purchasing one, I can get you a sweet deal. Okay, so (laughs) today's episode is the second half of the two-hour CEU. In this episode, Dr. Stead discusses advanced directives and challenges related to end-of-life care. She answers questions from the CEU participants and advocates for involvement in hospice and palliative care patients. Be sure to check out the show notes on speechuncensored.com to access those resources that Amanda recommends. My name is Leanne Porter. I'm your host of the Speech Uncensored podcast. And now let's jump back into the discussion. Well, hello, everyone. And Leanne, thank you so much for having me back again um, in this little bit different format. So my name is Amanda Stead, and I am an associate professor at Pacific University, which is outside of Portland, Oregon. And I specialize in neurodegenerative conditions, geriatrics, and end-of-life care. So I spend a great deal of time talking about everybody's most favorite and inspirational topics. So I'm really excited to actually share this information. And um, I'm such an advocate for the more you talk about it, the less weird it feels to talk about it. Now, what I really just want to say, and this is something that I did not understand from a sort of scientific or practitioner level, but knew of and certainly had bore witness to in my personal life, you have seen people go through traumatic events or your patients go through traumatic events and they grieved and then they moved through it, right? And then you've seen this other smaller proportion of people where they experienced an event and they have not been able to move through it. Mm-hmm. And What I will tell you is that grief is normal, complicated grief, and that is like really the technical term for it, is not. And complicated grief takes secondary intervention. Like people don't just like emerge from complicated grief. And so your biggest signals to complicated grief, and you might not always be the practitioner in this moment, but you might be seeing this on the outside, is that people are not progressing. Mm -hmm. They are just as busted up as they were early and they're still, I want to say perseverative, but that's what it'll, that's what it'll feel like from your vantage point. And that also, you know, this is the difference between the normal onset of acute depression and anxiety that are couched in grief versus Mm -hmm. the onset of a major clinical depression that takes more um, intervention. So if you notice that someone is in complicated grief, they need to get help and you need to help them understand they need help. Because remember, when people are in a major depression or a clinical depression or a major grief episode or even something like people have secondary psychosis and breakdowns, you know, to major events, they're not going to have necessarily the wherewithal to be like, you know what? I think I need to go get support. Like that's the whole issue, right? Is that, and so really helping families find the right way to get people to secondary help. And I have seen this happen in families where someone has had a long hospice or palliative journey and people are, there's been so much for so long that they really, you know, um, have a moment when things are finally wrapping up. Um, Amanda, who would be the best referral for that service? Um, Would just a counselor, would a specialized counselor, a licensed clinical psychologist? Like I can, I cannot speak on like a clinical psychologist who special in specialize in grief. Like if you can find folks who lead 
uh, support groups for grief or participate, like those are the right places. Not all counselors and psychologists do the same thing. And they're not all good at the same thing. Like finding someone who's specialized in grief counseling is really important. It's the same way, like, you know, marriage counselors are a special kind of breed and counselors that work with children with behavioral disorders are special. Like it's a specialty, right? Okay. So what I want to say about documentation is that, um, the wonderful movement in America to encourage advanced directives is like such a positive. And what our families are hearing though, is that on the advanced directive, if they couldn't uh, anticipate every single situation that you're they're you're going to let them die. And so for me, documentation is something that we should be talking about forever. Like, when you go to the doctor and you're 18 years old, you should be talking about advanced directives. You should talk about it at Thanksgiving every year and make sure everybody knows what everybody wants. You should like update it every time you have a live event, revisit it frequently. You should share a copy with any and all the people. And again, one, this, this works twofold. You've talked about death so much and you and all your friends and your family that one, nobody's unclear about what you want. And two, nobody's uncomfortable about talking about it. So they're not afraid to have the conversation. The best part about it is that then it's actually documented. So there's some like horrifying statistics about like, everybody knows they should tell the person. Very few people have actually written it down. Out of the people who've written it down, something like only 20% have shared the actual legal document with anybody who it would matter. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, so we all know it matters, but we're all afraid to do it. So documentation is the heart of autonomy. And it's really the heart of helping families like get what they want and that everybody's clear. The other great thing about documentation is it absolves your family from having to wonder what you wanted and make those decisions for you. Like I have documentation so that my family doesn't have to do the decisions, right? So my husband would never have to wonder what I would want or wouldn't want because I wrote it down. And now he doesn't have to make that choice and wonder if that was the right choice. That's a great opportunity. So what we want, and this goes back to you supporting communication, we want to help patients make their own decisions. It is always in the best interest of the patient to make their own freaking decisions, right? And it's in the best interest of the family to have the patient make the decision. So that's what we want. Turns out you're the one with the tools. You're going to get on in there with all of your wonderful support and communication and wonderful opportunities to support language and COG and external aids and AAC so that that person can make their own decisions. Also, this is how we allow them to sort of walk out the things that they would want to say and what they want to tell certain people. Mm -hmm. So by you having the conversation, you are allowing people to regain the reins of control, right? Of a process that is super uncontrollable. And what you're really doing is ensuring the goals. Because if I come to you and we've already walked out what feeding might look like, and then all of a sudden you're in that situation I don't have to sit there with your caregiver and be like, ooh, you know, I don't know. What do you want to do? You know, it's done. I'll be like, hey, this is what your dad wanted. They're like, oh, thank goodness. You know, like it, it really is the best case scenario. Mm-hmm. The other thing is that this lets you off the hook with worrying about you projecting your own personal values onto their end of life care, mm-hmm. Right. So it really helps you make sure that you've met their personal goals and not accidentally met your personal goals if you were in their situation. And that's really complicated. And just as a reminder, you have no idea what you would do in that situation. Like you think you know, but like you really don't know what you would want. And the other great thing about having documentation conversations is it helps people anticipate like some of the things that might happen. So I, you know, I don't know how some of you think about things, but I need to think of all possible scenarios before I can calm down about something like worst case scenario, best case scenario, all the middle grounds, where are the loopholes? Where am I going to get caught in something? And then I'm like, no, okay, now I'm fine. Like, you know, but this is a way to put information out, help people actually consider, 
oh, wow, it like never occurred to me that I might not be able to talk. Well, if that's the case, like what would I want to do now? What would I want to communicate? You know, I know people who, after having that conversation, have gone and written letters to all their family members in case they didn't have the chance to tell them things they wanted to tell them because it had just never occurred to them that they would be too tired or on too many painkillers to really have a good conversation, right? And it's going to help people reconsider their goals. So advanced directives are the way to go. And if people don't want to name things in advanced directives, like if you don't want to say, you know what, I definitely am opposed to non-oral hydration. Like if you, if you don't want to like draw your line in the sand, you can really go back to the idea that like, I'm going to name my proxy though. Right. And so documentation is about considering options mm-hmm. in different scenarios, thinking about, you know, we, we hate to get in the weeds here, but like resuscitation, you know, people are really familiar with DNRs and what DNRs mean. Thinking about ventilation, people have very strong feelings about ventilation. Mm-hmm. Things like non-oral feeding or artificial hydration, pain control, pain control at the cost of cognition, pain control at the cost of respiration. And this is stuff people don't like to talk about. You know, terminal sedation is definitely a thing. Like mm-hmm. if you have enough morphine to control your pain, a secondary cause is decreased respiration. You know, that is not euthanasia, that's pain management. We could totally get in the weeds about the ethics of intention, but terminal sedation is a very common outcome in the United States end of life care. The intention is to control your pain. The consequence of your pain management is that your breathing is really impacted. Mm. So, you know, do you want to talk through what morphine pain management would look like with your patient? Or if not, you know, sometimes we're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Like, what are you talking about? Well, great. What you do is you say, these are some questions you might want to ask your doctor. Like, hey, I know there's all sorts of things people take for pain. Can you explain that to me? What about dialysis? What about biopsies? What about secondary procedures? What about antibiotics for a UTI? You ever thought about that? You know, like, do you not give someone antibiotics? This is the stuff we talk about. Now, what people think is going to happen, this is not happen, is if your advanced directive says, I don't want morphine, and then you are in a situation where you really need morphine, there are ways to help families move through those circumstances Mm -hmm. and still like people are so afraid that they're going to be like, I don't want ventilation. Right? Like I I would say, I personally do not want ventilation unless I knew that ventilation were a bridge. Right? So if you were going to be ventilated and in a month you would be off the ventilator and you'd have a good outcome. 99.99% of people would be like, Oh, okay, I'll do that. But you and I both know that that isn't necessarily what happens. So people are afraid if they say, I don't want ventilation. That means as maybe like a young person I code and they're like, I don't know, she would have been okay, but now she won't. Like that isn't what happens though, y'all. Like, and that isn't what happens. I just am saying that out loud. People don't let people die. And the special circumstances accounted for in your uh, um, documentation, like cases for dementia are really specialized and really allow for a lot of space for proxies to get involved, right? And so what we wanna do is we wanna help families understand that these are not, you're not making decisions that will keep people from saving your life. Mm -hmm. Advanced directives are used when they can't. That's why they're being accessed in the first place. It's not like I have an advanced directive and something bad happens to me that's totally recoverable and they look at it or like, oh, I don't know, we got to let her die. I have an advanced directive in case I might not recover. Like that's the whole point of having it. The advanced directive is if stuff's bad, what do I want bad to look like, right? What choices do I make in the face of 
few choices. That's really what advanced directives are about. The most important thing you can do for families is help them name a person to make their decisions because it turns out not all families get along very well. So help people name someone. Make sure if they named someone, that person knows they're the person that's been named. Because I've seen that happen. Like people didn't know they were the proxy oh. until they got a call from the hospital. Oh, no. And that's really scary. You yeah. should also have like proxy A through D, you know, mm-hmm. like in case that's your proxy. proxy isn't available. Mm-hmm. And you should always think about for people who are far away from family, you should always have a local proxy, mm-hmm. in my opinion, you know, because I think that makes a lot more sense. And you need to talk to your proxies about what you would want anyways and not leave it to them to speculate. So thinking about our time, would I, would I think requires some special understanding. So already understanding like your business is end of life care. It's part of your scope of practice. End-of-life care work is good work because we don't care ration. People have fully paid for those benefits. You are absolutely as important there as you are in acute care, as you are in skilled nursing, as you are in home health. Hospice care is care. It's an important moment for care. So you've been given some counseling tools. How are we going to talk about this in the first place? What is really important? How are we going to use our language and our bodies to support families through incredibly grief-stricken, tumultuous moments that feel like high stakes. And so we're going to help walk them through that. We're going to try to preemptively do this by supporting them doing documentation. You know, if your patient has just had a stroke and they had a brush with death and they're an outpatient, that's a great time to make sure that documentation is sealed up. You know, people find a real palatable to talk about end-of-life care when they just like dodge, you know, like a big incident. So turns out you can work on language by filling out an advanced directive. So just put it as a, you know, activity in your work. So now where it is muddy, muddy for a lot of people is what end of life care looks like when someone has dementia Mm. or someone has delirium. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, delirium and dementia are really different. But I think speaking to this idea of someone does not feel able to make their own decisions, that's really what we're talking about. The other problem is, is that the diagnosis alone does not strip an individual's ability to make decisions. So how do you actually triangulate decision-making? And we, I think we're not very good at this. I hate to say that, but you know, um, A diagnosis does not render you incompetent. And um, we are really quick to take away autonomy from people with dementia. And it, you know, it's not ethical. It's just not, you know, a diagnosis doesn't strip you of your ability to make decisions. You know, we should not be so confident that you can see competency and capacity from the outside. You know, like that takes work to make sure people can make decisions. So, You know that a diagnosis of a dementia, the disease state with dementia, like literally impacts attention, executive function, memory, communication. Those are the things you need to make really good decisions. And so when someone can't claim this, like state a clear choice, um, or maybe just not in this moment, we know that what happens is that they're not involved in their decisions. And that's complicated, right? Which again is why we do documentation way before anything is wrong. Mm -hmm. Because then when something is wrong and we cannot make our own decisions, we've already documented what we want. So these are questions from my vantage point that people are asking about our patients with dementia all the time. My patient is not eating. Are they not eating because they're not hungry? Are they not well? Are they confused? Can they not pay attention to the plate? Do they not know what they're looking at? Are they diet? Mm-hmm. Like, what's happening, right? And you can't be like, hey, Mr. Bill, what's going on? And it's yeah. not going to be like, well, actually, you know, and so people all of a sudden, like, don't know what to do. You know, my patient's really agitated. Well, are they agitated? Because it turns out they have, like, 
disease invasion of their frontal lobe and they're having a hard time interpreting their environment. That's super normal. You would be agitated if you had no idea where you were too. So, you know, give them a little bit of grace. Or are they agitated because they're in pain Mm -hmm. and now you can't ask them or feel like efficaciously you can, you know, take their, them at their word necessarily, right? Or, you know, are they happy? What is their quality of life? And there's these really interesting cases. You should go through the news of your local state of people that says, I don't want assisted feeding. And then they go to assisted, you know, then they end up in long-term care, memory care. And all of a sudden they're getting hand fed by an aide. You know, this happened in Oregon a couple of years ago. Husband comes in and says, she said she didn't want this. Organization says she accepts the food when we feed her. She seems happy and like she has a quality of life. Denying her this food would in fact be killing her. Now who's right? Well, they're probably both a little bit right. And so it is true that a person documented a wish for feeding. It is also true that people's desires and wants change and their ability to change that documentation is super limited. Mm. It is also true that you cannot imagine what your quality of life would be like significantly impaired. Yeah. And so all of a sudden you're like, I don't know, everyone's right. And turns out that's complicated, right? So like feeding and quality of life issues are front and center in dementia care and really complicated and can pit people legally against each other. So, you know, we know that if this is a contentious moment. So the best thing we can do is keep people eating in a way that makes them happy so that this isn't the cause of their death, right? Like that's what we don't want to do. And we want to make sure that we're helping families and patients like make decisions about what they're going to eat and how they're going to eat despite major cognitive impairment in some cases, right? Mm -hmm. So lots of patients with dementia get pneumonia. And that's complicated because is there a little bit of dysphagia? Yeah, probably. Is it the food they're eating? Well, maybe. Is it the poor oral care? Well, maybe, you know, and it's, it's complicated, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you go into a restricted, a memory care unit and they'll say they don't force people to brush their teeth, which is really interesting. So they force people to take diet modifications, mm-hmm. but don't force people to brush their teeth. And you and I both know the likelihood of pneumonia from poor oral care really overeating, you know, of all things. Yeah. And, you know, we're already doing some funny things. So we know that dysphagia related to the neurocognitive disorder and the geriatric status of frailty in a lot of our patients put them at high risk for both pneumonia and poor caloric intake. Caloric intake alone can make your meds go completely sideways because they're dosed for someone who weighs something different and can set off that like cascade of events in someone's body that's really difficult to pull them back from, you know, moving into some forms of like shutdown. And so, you know, people need to eat and how they eat is really important. And so we know that they're more likely to have pneumonia than other older patients without dementia. And they're more likely to die of pneumonia. So pneumonia is a leading cause of death for people who have a concomitant diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. We also know that it's more significant versions of pneumonia, like they get it badly and they cannot come back to it because they have an underlying frailty. Mm -hmm. So when we think about how we're going to feed people safely, Mm -hmm. hand feeding is definitely something that the evidence says people need their caloric intake supported and is not shown to be significantly against quality of life. And I think that's where people are getting a little funny. They're like, oh, I don't want to be fed. Well, it appears that people actually don't mind. It's, you know, how people feed. We have a lot of work to do training our one-to-one feeders. So we'll put that on another podcast. But (laughs) 
The other thing is that, again, tube feeding is something we talk about with all sorts of populations. When someone cannot eat food orally or eat orally well, the evidence is pretty clear that tube feeding is not a great solution for people with dementia and that it doesn't lead to significantly increased quality of life or longevity and is actually like advocated against. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we, it's not really an option. It is an option, but it's not the solution to the problem you find yourself in. Mm -hmm. So it is true that our patients with advanced dementia often stop eating. And what I want to tell you is if you have worked to check on like pain and dysphagia, secondary infection, medical condition, keeping people, things like nausea, you know, where people don't want to eat, like you don't want to eat when you're nauseous. And so thinking about like all these other causes, thinking about a supportive feeding environment, sensory preferred foods, taste and all this stuff, and you have thrown the kitchen sink at it and people still don't want to eat what's happening is someone is dying. And this is something that we can't stop. So unless we force feed or tube feed, this is represents your threshold of moving into end of life care. And that is a really hard conversation with families. And the way you can have that conversation is because you've done everything in the kitchen sink. Mm-hmm. You walked through all the causes and you know that often refusal of food is often the beginning of the active dying process for a lot of individuals. And so here we are, we now find ourselves on that threshold. So we're transitioning from dementia care to end of life care. Yeah. Okay. So I'm wondering, is there a time frame, a threshold for people who maybe are having a bad day. Maybe it's an acute reason. Maybe there's an increase of pain. Maybe they're feeling nauseous, right? Like how long do you do your detective work before recognizing that this person is in their end of life? Yeah. Well, you know, I think part of it is about due diligence. So I think a lot of it depends on your settings culture. You know, if if your nurses are just like, on it and they're checking, you know, white blood cell count, looking for infection and doing body checks to check for pain and working on ways to think about that. And then you on the other side are like rearranging the food presentation and thinking about like new, you know, the OTs are coming in with adaptive tools. Like it depends on how on it your, your setting is mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Um, it depends on what your one-to-one feeders are like, you know, how skilled your feeders are and what that's like, depends on what the environment is like. And so I think there's a lot of players, but what I would say is like, you've got to check the body for acute reasons. You've got to check the food and the food presentation for like, do I want to eat that? And like sensory issues, right? And then you have to check things that like are within your normal scope. It's like, is the person alert enough? right and aware enough to be eating? Do they have like a significant dysphagia or a change in actual feeding? Um, And I think if you've checked those boxes and people still aren't eating and, you know, that that's the conversation you have with families. This is what we've done. Okay. It does not appear that there is another way forward other than it seems like your loved one is no longer desiring to eat despite all of these interventions we've attempted in problem solving. This is not uncommon. This is not unexpected. Mm -hmm. This is a really common way that people with a significant neurocognitive degenerative disease face the end of their life. And, you know, are they refusing it, like, cognitively? No, probably not. Is it the disease, like, losing their ability to initiate? Is it the body shutting down? Well, it's probably a whole bunch of, you know, just the myriad of factors. But what we do know is that if people don't eat, 
you're going to enter the end of life care process. And if you've done your work and you've been transparent about your work and you've worked with your team, you sort of checked those boxes. I feel like you can with reasonable certainty say we're entering a new phase. Okay. That's that transition from like, you know, like palliative dementia care in a lot of ways. to like hospice, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Diagnosis of dementia does not land you in hospice. Refusing to eat when you have dementia moves you to hospice. You know, um, there was a great paper by um, Michelle Bourgeois and colleagues talking about using visual supports to help people make decisions. Well, duh, like, of course, like if you provide someone with impaired cognition, a secondary modality to help interpret complex decisions, it mm-hmm. increases their ability to make decisions. Surprise. Isn't that great? Well, here, once again, we're saying it to you again. Talking at someone with a cognitive impairment is not the most effective strategy. Mm -hmm. So we have to do double work, cross-checking, double modalities to really support that independence of thought and Mm decision-making. So we know that when you use visual supports, they actually produce a ton more information. I'm also a huge advocate of someone who works with dementia patients all the time. If you want to ask them a confrontational question, like you're holding your stomach, does that hurt? And they have a significant level of dementia. Like sometimes we need to ask people questions who have really impaired cognition, right? Yeah. Before you do that, if you can spend like 10 minutes doing like a Montessori activity that, or a reminiscent activity that helps prime them mm-hmm. and get their sort of like cognition sort of revved up to the best of their ability and sort of plays to their strengths. And then you ask your hardcore confrontational memory laden question, the thing we know that's going to be really hard, but you've positioned them in a way where they maybe could answer that question, that's the best thing you can do. I hate it when people go up to patients who are really significantly impaired and they're like, hey, Miss Betty, does your stomach hurt? And Miss Betty's like, what? Like, just okay. like, what? like, I see that. I see that happening, right? Because I've experienced yeah. it so much. I think of this is probably a bad analogy that I'm going to regret making someday, but it, I think it's sort of that idea. It's like when your computer is in sleep mode, your computer is on, but your computer is not like using ideas. Like while I'm doing that, my computer isn't off, but my computer needs a minute before I type something in the Google. Yeah. Right. Well, think of it. It's like, it's like if I woke you up in the morning and I was like, what's 365 times 212. And you'd be like, why would you ask me that? What are you talking? I'm not sure I could do that fully awake, but (laughs) That's the point, right? Like you need to prime. You understand priming. Like you're a master of language and cognition. Priming is your game. So that's what we need to do before we ask those questions. So please, please, please hang out and fold towels and sort things and look at incredibly like awesome 1940s time magazines with your patients before you ask them the hard question. You're more likely to get the real answer from them. You know, that's something we can train caregivers to do. So, you know, in sort of wrapping up, I think if I would just like say anything to wrap up, I just really hope everyone hears me say end of life care is your business Mm -hmm. and it is billable and documentable and paid for and mandated and super, super, super important. And your skill set and our skill set as a profession is so prevalent in these conversations and these journeys for families, if we can just make the case and prove our point, we can find ourselves in a profession or like in a position to do this work, which is of such need and benefit to the community, Mm -hmm. you know, and I just cannot advocate more strongly where if you're not the one having the conversation you're the person in the consultative model still like dipping in and helping families when they need you um because we truly are like masters of communication and feeding and end of life is a lot about communication and feeding 
like you can really help people reach their goals. And for me, that's just like really good and important work. Yeah. I love that. Thank you, Amanda. This was so good. And now we have some fantastic questions. Oh my goodness. Here we go. Yeah. I'm going to start you off with kind of, I think of it as a really quick one. Um, What are your favorite references or books for gaining insight into the grief process? Oh, there's this great, but oh my gosh, like the number, um, the number of books that I've read about end of life care is like probably a little creepy, but my (laughs) two favorite books about understanding the experience of end of life and thinking about grief is there's this great book called it's okay. You're not okay. Okay. I'm going to that into our chat. It's okay that you're not okay. And I can, I'm sure I can quickly Amazon it and find it. And then um, the, my other, if I could tell you to read one book this year, the book would be On Living by Carrie Egan. And this is a book written by a hospice chaplain. And I cannot uh, encourage you enough. It is beautiful and informative and like very super moving. And I think, you know, your spiritual leanings are very irrelevant in reading that book. I mean, she's a chaplain, but what she's talking about is the conversations she has with people at the end of their life. And that is the best way to learn is to learn from people who are going through it. And so I would read that book. It's a quick read. It's super beautiful. Good. Um, anything specific about the grief process? Oh, what would I say about the grief process? I think it's okay that you're not okay is, is a really good book to read about grief specifically. I think the thing that I learned about grief is I started studying counseling more is that, and you know, this as a person, but grief isn't something that we move through and then is over you know, grief is more that like ocean now or metaphor, you know, where it's like there's waves and the waves are big and the waves crash really frequently around the trauma, around the incident. And then the waves spread out a little bit more and they get a little bit smaller, but they keep coming. And then sometimes you have long patches of soft sea only to be overtaken by a very unexpected large wave. Like grief is kind of a lifelong process for a lot of folks and grief can be triggered and re-triggered depending on the event and the type of scenario, which is why it's particularly important that people don't stuff grief Mm -hmm. because a secondary trigger then like blows it out twice as big because the original grief wasn't dealt with in the same way. And so um, it has really helped me to understand that Grief is not something that we complete and that we don't find happiness and that we don't accept is that we live beside and that we continue to build resilience, right? Alongside the actual kind of traumatic and big lifetime event. And so um, I think like the counseling literature can be good. I haven't read a lot of other like good counseling books. So. All right. Um, all right. If you do think of any, you can always email me and I'll put them up in the kind of show notes that I put mm-hmm. up for today's, um, CEU on speech uncensored.com. Right. And I actually have linked on to the book on living by Carrie Egan. Cause that was one of your recommendations from our original podcast episode. I, would. So I just copied over all those resources yes. and put them there too. Yes. <laughs> all right. So, um, a next comment question is, um, refusing to eat doesn't enter them into hospice. Okay. Agreed. NPO because of clear aspiration hospice now, obviously we're not going to recommend or push for tube feeds because that's likely an inappropriate recommendation for them. So if they're NPO, because whatever they may put in their mouth, if they're still accepting things in their mouth is going to go straight into their lungs. I I, I need to go on hospice? Well, and I think that's really complicated is should they be NPO if making them NPO effectively moves them to hospice because we won't do a tube feeding? 
Yeah, I think that's really complicated, right? And I think that goes back into the sort of like gray area is like, should we modify diets of people with dementia? I don't know. I don't, I don't know that I know the answer to that. I think that that's something you should definitely think about at 3 a.m. tonight. No, that's the worst. Now I know, I I'm so sorry I said that. But I mean, I think that is a really interesting ethical question. If you know it's not a bridge... Right. It's not a brain. And you know that patients have a neurocognitive terminal condition mm-hmm. and you know that they want the thing. We know that changing a diet or downgrading a diet decreases often oral intake anyways, because, you know, who wants to eat puree anything? I think it's just really complicated. And I know we have like so many legality issues with the refusal of diet recommendations. You see it in our facilities, you know, it's like, you get the diet recommendation, but we're not going to brush your teeth, which is so bizarre for me. It's like, we'll force you to eat pureed chicken, but we're not going to force you to open your mouth for a toothbrushing. That just seems like, what's the point of pureeing the chicken for me? Yeah. Um, I can see that. Yeah. I think it's really complicated. Um, If you know that someone can no longer receive calories, it, they have to go on hospice. You know, there's, there's no other way around it. I think the more interesting question is, are we handling diet recommendations for terminal patients or patients with long-standing cognitive disorders the right way in the first place? And I'm certainly not going to sit here and say that I know the answer to that. I don't know. I'm, I think we should probably ask some of our ethicists um, about that. I think they might have some better insight. Yeah. I feel like that's a perfect plug for the all about ethics podcast that speech therapy PD put out like Ah. multiple episodes uh, covering different settings. Um, So that's out there for you guys. Okay. Um, Are there any certification programs for palliative care that include coursework for SLPs? They know about NHPCO has certification programs for social work, nursing, doctors, and chaplains. Um, This participant works in home health and they're constantly working without the palliative and hospice team. I really hope that was a typo. (laughs) I'd love to be able to pursue additional certification and education. And they thank you for this talk. (laughs) Oh, thank you. You know, I took a certificate course. I have a certificate in end of life care. I'm not sure anybody cares, (laughs) you know. (laughs) or like it means anything, or it's like legitimate, or that anyone would accept it. And I would say um, any certification or CE or anything that you could get and then take back to your company and be like, look, look, I have the thing. But I don't know personally, and this is not definitive of any like legit thing to be like, I'm a certified SLP end of life person. Like, I, I don't really know. Yeah. And there's definitely like, training you can get and you know just like you know there's like dementia care specialists and there's you know end of life care and geriatric certifications now them being honored or legitimate by either our organization or the organization that you work with i think that's really complicated you know sometimes we can bring all the credentials we want to the table and -hmm. people don't care what i might do is go back to your organization and ask, I, I'm seeing a lot of your patients. I don't feel like we're collabor- collaborating. Is there something you would like me to do to be included in these conversations? Because I feel like I have, and sort of put it back on them. It really depends on who you work for, though, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a horrible and answer to your question. I'm sorry, that was not helpful. So I would like to just have in our recording for um, people who are going to watch this in the future who won't be able to see our chat feature on Zoom, that there's a recommendation to check out the Shiley, I hope I said that right, Shiley Institute from the California State University System. And the website for that is csupalliativecare.org. Okay, so... Ready for another one? Ready. Okay, so I'm sorry if I read this choppy. I didn't get a chance to like practice it first. (laughs) All right, so this one's a little bit longer. What do we know as SLPs about guiding a family whose terminal family member is on a feeding tube for head and neck cancer and is in final weeks? 
how do we advise the family about reducing intake? And that would normally happen at end of life if the person wasn't on feeding tubes. Um, the ask, asker, no, the person typing <laughs> has been very challenged trying to find evidence-based data on this. How do we help families adjust the calorie intake during this time? This seems like a big hole in helping families cope in this situation. So how do we support the natural process that the patient's going through? That is a really good question. And so when we're not doing oral feeding and we have external feedings and people, you know, can just keep on feeding despite people at the end of life. So I think there's a couple things happening. It depends on if that's bad or not. So a lot of patients like refusing to eat um, is a normal part of dying, but they have control over that or their body has control over that. And that's sort of like what spurs and supports their end of life process, right? So that's normal. Uh, that isn't the word I want, which is why I'm using air quotes. Okay, mm -hmm. so for our patients that are getting like external feeding, so the question I would ask is, do you have evidence that the external feeding is causing discomfort, pain, or increasing incontinence issues? Mm -hmm. And if the answer to that is no, then I would let it ride. If the answer to that is yes, I think part of what we do is we help families see that correlation and we provide them with some evidence that like sometimes for some of our patients, introducing food into the stomach while they're dying can increase pain load. Mm. So that's something that happens because they can't digest, mm -hmm. right? So if you see, I think, evidence of pain post-feeding, increased like continence issues or in it throwing up or like regurgitation, something like that, I think this is how you help families walk through that process. But that isn't the case for everybody. You know, some people like eat up until the 11th hour and then they sort of slip into a coma and they're good. You know, good is not used, but you know, you're not having that same conversation where for some patients, the feeding issue is so much more prevalent because of the way their body is shutting down or the concomitant disorders. or like you said, like head neck cancer because of like the nature of how they've gotten there. And I think I would keep an eye on like pain, discomfort, continent, like reflux, regurgitation, throwing up, things like that. And if there is no correlation, I would let it go. But if there is, help families see that and talk about the relationship between, you know, the patient can't really digest food anymore. It might be causing them pain. This is what I'm worried about. Okay. Does that seem okay? I mean, I liked it. Okay. <laughs> All right. If you guys have any follow-up questions to any of the questions that Amanda's answered, you guys can type those in too. All right. So our last question that is there for now, um, I'm just going to read this. I'm not going to try to interpret it just exactly as it's written. So <laughs> how can we avoid the following scenario I've seen twice in last year? Client has cancer that in the final stage meets to, oh, metastasizes to the brain, causing significant fluent aphasia. The client is sent from sent home from the hospital with significant aphasia on hospice care. The SLP is not involved because they are sent home so quickly. The families are left with no training and experience, horrible frustration around lack of ability to communicate with their loved one in the final days. How can we get hospice care workers to identify this scenario and quickly move to bring in SLPs to provide partner training and support? Or, yeah. how, oh, sorry, there's one more part to oh, that. Oh, yeah, keep going. Or how do we do better job of training hospice workers on how to help families learn these skills? Uh, so, you know, I think we have to play that one on both sides, you know, like you're suggesting. So we do not... Um, despite being one of the services, hospice absolutely uh, is included in. Like, we are in the hospice benefit, no doubt. Not everybody knows that. When you say that, that means we could bill our, like, 92507 code for, like, speech and language treatment to a patient who is on hospice care. Yes, yes. And get reimbursed. Yes. 
We are one of the like ancillary services listed under hospice care. Okay. And it's not just us, it's PTs and OTs too, you know, and even like some of the services like, you know, uh, massage and acupuncture are increasing in the hospice benefit. So you're in the benefit. So what that tells me is that your locality, like your local hospice folk don't know or understand that and don't identify that. So we have two ways to do this. You know, we either have to, upon discharge, make sure that we're like threat level midnight discharge, send me back over, you know, like get, get the SLP. This person needs SLP when they go home for this reason. Or we have to really do that like organization work and get with our hospice folks and be like, this is what I've noticed. I would love the opportunity to support you with these patients. Mm -hmm. How can we like identify? And the thing is, is that people mistake aphasia for delirium and terminal delirium all the time. They're like, oh, they're talking kind of confused. That must be delirium. And it's not, you know that, but they don't know that. And so it's also like, I just like assume good intention and that they don't know what they don't know and that they're ignorant. Ignorant is not a dirty word. So it's a word that we know means you don't have the knowledge. So I think you go in from this totally good intention sort of space and say, hey, like I've had these patients. I'm wondering how I can support getting those referrals back out your speech pathologist. I know that's really important to you. And or like, can we set up a training you know, so I can help you think about like some caregiver tools for these folks and just like partner. Like if that's, that's where we screw up sometimes is we're mm-hmm. so pissed. Mm-hmm. The thing isn't happening that we don't position ourselves as the partner. So yeah. I think I would work it from both angles, mm-hmm. you know, train the hospice people to train the family because they're not always going to call you, but then also try to get them to call you anyways. Yeah. I feel like that would be reaching out to the care coordinator planner might be social work at your hospital and let them know that that's a service you can provide as a speech and language pathologist. So as soon as a patient is identified as um, a palliative or hospice candidate, they maybe even at a system level, you could advocate for having orders placed for your consult while they're in the hospital. And if there's no no time for that and they're being like quickly discharged, that it's an automatic referral for home health SLP to be involved. Yeah. So I feel like we need to be better about getting in there. Yeah, we have to like make the, the worst thing is, is, you know, we've seen this in dementia care. We've worked so hard to get referrals for our dementia patients. And then they get referred to a clinician that doesn't know what to do. Or was trained that we don't, worse, how many clinicians have we trained that we don't work with dementia patients because they don't get better? And I'm like, oh God, you know, we've worked for that referral, you know? And so I think it's also, we have to do just like assume good intentions and keep educating, educating, educating. And I know, you know, that happens off hours and that sucks, but here we are. And it's good work and we can do that work when we can and when we find ourselves with space to do it. You know, you don't need to die on the hill of the profession, but there are lots of places we can keep elbowing out Mm -hmm. to make our place at the table. Mm -hmm. And, you know, healthcare ain't getting better. If we don't have our place at the table, I'm afraid we're going to find ourselves in a complicated situation here in a couple of decades. So, you know, we want to claim hospice and palliative care. That's our business. Get up in there, you know. Excellent. You know, we're doing so much counseling and information giving and like not like anyways with all of our patients. And it's not like we're sitting there being like, oh, this is BS. I can't bill for this. Like you, we understand that it's part of our work. So I think when we're thinking about our hospice patients, like how are we going to, it's not like you showed up there randomly, you know, you're already there to do your work. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're not like walking into a person's room who's dying and being like, how can I counsel you today? Like, that's already not why you're there. So like, you're already there to do a job. So I think that work is really seated within the context of supported communication, caregiver training, AAC and decision-making, facilitation of like comprehension, like understanding capacity documentation, you know, and thinking about feeding and swallowing. Like we're already there for a reason. 
Where it's more concerning is when we're not there at all. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, if you're in the room and your patient's at end of life, you already won. Like you got in the room. I think what I'm more worried about is when we're not in the room. And if you're not in the room, it's not because people don't need you. It's because your system doesn't know they need you. So how are you going to elbow in there? And that takes like really educating our localities. You know, you're not going to like fix Kaiser or fix like Blue Cross Blue Shield. Like they don't get that. What you can fix is your building though. Mm -hmm. And like your local agency, you can make movement there, you know? And turns out that we have better outcomes when we provide good care. Better outcomes means money. That's a, that's a pitch they'll hear you, you know? And as long as we're fee-for-service, you billing Medicare to do your work, that benefits your company, you know? That sucks to say, but, like, that's kind of the reality of it right now. So if your good work is their financial pitch, that's fine. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean it's not good. Yeah, that answered my question. I have one short one left. So let's say um, I have an appropriate patient for... (laughs) doing some advanced care documentation, like getting them to start thinking about these things and making these decisions. And do I just do a Google search? Am I going to find like tens of thousands of different styles? Like, (laughs) so how do I know I'm using a good one or is there such thing as a bad one? There is definitely bad ones, but the best place you can look is every state often has a free standard form supplied by your health authority. You know, um, that's a good place to start. I think that that like, and that's the form that you can kind of like take to the bank and be like, this is legit. You know, this is a legal form that you can get notarized and everything. What I would say is good forms do a couple of things. They name a proxy. Okay. And they consider or acquiesce in certain situations. So if they're not asking about levels of care, things like respiration and ventilation, things like feeding, things like special circumstances like irrecoverable brain injury, dementia, um, like major surgery, things like that, then they're probably not specific enough to do you any good unless your purpose is to name a proxy only. Mm-hmm. And so I think specificity is good. Lots and lots of our patients are afraid of specificity. But I think it is a way, even if you're not going to document it all, document the proxy and proxy A, B, and C, and get them started on the conversation and go to the Conversation Projects website because, you know, they say straight off, like, this is not meant to be had in a one shot. This is a conversation you have over time. And you come to a new and, uh, you know, like larger understanding. So like, it's a great activity to like weasel in there when you're working with all of our patients. And I think if, if you don't make it weird, it's not weird. Like if you're not like, so I was hoping to work, if you're just like, Hey, I brought this thing. Isn't this fun? Here we go. And you just sort of like get it in there. You know, I'm a big, I'm a big proponent of, like making weird things feel totally normal. I think people find you sort of fascinating for a moment and then it's too late because they're already (laughs) Then they're hooked. Oh, I love it. Amanda, this was so good. I loved our first talk. I was enraptured for two whole hours. Like this was good. Thank you so much for those wonderful questions that we got from our participants. Such good stuff. Um, Yeah, this outline is a treasure. I wrote so many notes. Um, yeah, I'm totally going to go check out that conversation project website. I feel like I could utilize a lot of that for a myriad of patients. I mean, if, I mean, we could do this for all kinds of patients who maybe even aren't necessarily at end of life, but I feel like I'm wondering, like, it could be like a good therapy task for like problem solving, decision making. And it's so functional because it's like their life and what they need to have. And it should like literally be all patients. Because, because the thing is, is if you wait till you need it to do it, mm-hmm. it's probably a bad time to be doing it. 
And the thing is, is like, I, I just believe if like everybody from every doctor's visit you had every time you showed up to the doctor for any old nonsense, they had this conversation with you, we would all feel a lot less weird about it when we actually had to have the conversation. And we need to like destigmatize the fact that like we are alive biological beings and like it's not going to last forever. And like the best thing you can do the evidence says is you having documented increases your chance of having, you know, the best outcome at the end of your life. Who doesn't want to do that? Yeah. Right. I want a good death. If I want that, I should prepare for it. I should start now. Well, we've gone a little bit over time. This was wonderful. Thank you, Dr. Stead so much for sharing your expertise and your knowledge. I've loved it. Great. Thank you all so much. Oh no, Amanda, you froze right in the middle of your goodbye. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Now am I unfrozen? You are unfrozen. I'll just keep being awkward. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, good. (laughs) All right, bye y'all. Bye everybody, good night. Thanks for listening to another edition of the Speech Uncensored podcast. Show notes with links to resources mentioned in the episode are posted on speechuncensored.com. I'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a thoughtful review on Apple Podcasts. And finally, I'd like to leave you with my wish for you to nourish your mind so that your practice can flourish. Thank you.